We are in 1 John chapter 5 today. We're going to begin with verse 5, and we're going to go through verse 12. We actually ended with verse 5 last week, and we really cannot continue into verse 6 unless we start with verse 5. So we're going to be reading that together. And if this, if you're a guest today, then uh, this is what we're doing through this series uh, is not just for me to talk to you, but for you to process and talk back. Uh, if you want to talk back and disagree, you're more than welcome to do that. You need to have some biblical references uh, if you want to do that. But this is a, a place for you to communicate, uh, ask questions, I'm going to ask you some questions, and our whole reason for doing this is because it just activates your brain rather than you just sitting here listening. So if something comes up, I want you to bring it up. Uh, If you have a question, I want you to ask a question. I do not have every answer for every question, but I will do my best, and maybe someone else in the room will have an answer for your question as well. So feel free to jump in to be a part of this, and I'm looking forward to moving through this section. Last week, John made a move. Now, just a reminder of how important John's words are. This is the Apostle John. He wrote the Gospel of John early on. And then he wrote epistles to churches in Turkey after he left Jerusalem and he began working and planting churches in Turkey. The book of Revelation has a section and it is primarily written to seven specific churches. Those churches are the churches that John worked with. John is the only apostle that died of old age or natural causes. As far as we know, that's how he died. Legend tells us that attempts were made on his life, but he did not die in those attempts. Uh, He's considered one of the three pillars of the early church, and his writings have been held up with a number of writings that have been found close to the time of writing, uh, just verifying the words of John and their consistency. Last week, we began to make a shift towards the end of his letter, which is what an epistle is. It's a letter. We made a shift because he's been talking about two primary things, and that is the area of walking in love, and that we love the message of the gospel is love, and the the greatest commandments in which Jesus told us this is what it looks like to follow the law is love. But he also focused on, which was a problem in this part of the world, which is a problem all over the world, has always been and will always be, with taking the gospel and changing it. And so he wanted people to be sure that they understood what Jesus was teaching. And so he not only has an emphasis on love, he has an emphasis on holiness or truth. And his this dual idea that we need to be walking in love and we need to be walking in truth. Now, last week he makes that shift to saying this is all because of Jesus. This is all because of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at these few verses in which what John is trying to show us is your faith is trustworthy. You can believe these things. You can trust these things. And as we live in a world that consistently does not validate our beliefs, and it sometimes pokes fun at us for believing, what he is trying to tell us is, you have such an incredible assurance of your faith that the world cannot stand against you. Well, let's begin with 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. And if you would stand with me, we're going to read this together. I hope you've read this already. And are prepared today. If not, we'll be finishing chapter 5 next week. You can read chapter 5 and be prepared for next week as well. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. All right, thank you. You can be seated. All right, let's pray together, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is trustworthy for the consistent message of the gospel that has been spread for 2,000 years. Father, I pray that as we come together in your word, that you will just make our minds awake, uh, our hearts alive with your word, and Father, that you would not only speak to us, but allow us to speak to each other and to encourage one another. Uh, We thank you for this, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. There are four basic arguments that John's making here, and we're going to have to drill down in a couple of them, so I want you to hang with me. But of the four basic arguments that that we look at, verse 5 says, we are overcomers who overcome the world. Now, we live in a world in which most people would not consider themselves an overcomer. I think this is an incredible shift in kind of the uh, cultural identity that we have for ourselves, and that in my lifetime, uh, we have moved from a focus on strength and being an overcomer to we seem to be continually moving into a place of weakness and the celebration of our weaknesses. Now, that is not to mean that there is not great value, great spiritual value in recognizing our brokenness, but Scripture does not encourage us to live lives of defeat. Instead, it encourages us to live lives that are victorious. We are overcomers. And John is entering into this section talking about why can you believe that? So that this is not just kind of, I'm going to choose to believe this. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I'm just going to choose to believe that this stuff is real. What John is saying is, no, we have evidence. We have evidence that this is true and that this is real. And those that overcome the world are the only ones that can are those that believe that Jesus is the son of God. So John makes kind of four arguments here. And this is an easy passage, like many of the others in the epistles of John, to just kind of read and I got that. Yeah, he's just kind of saying the gospel's true. But when we stop and we look, there's so much here that we can pull out. We could spend quite a bit of time just on these few verses, but we're going to move through this section today. John's first argument that he's making is this. The only people who overcome the world are true believers in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a bold statement, and this goes against some of the teachings of our culture, and even some people who profess to be followers of Jesus, that Jesus is but one way to get to heaven. One way to get to paradise when you die. One way, just an option. With all the other options, John and none of the apostles, nor did Jesus ever communicate this, that this is just a way. But instead, he is saying the only people who overcome the world are those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's what I want you to think about just for a minute, and I want you to do this early on, so before you get tired and before you get too hungry, because I know what happens when those two things happen. (laughs) I want you to, just with your neighbors around you, I want you to come up with some ways, and what does he mean when he says we're going to overcome the world? So take a couple of minutes, talk to anyone who's around you, What are some examples? What are we overcoming? Are we going to just take over eventually the world? Are we going to roll in with tanks? Or what does it look like to overcome the world? And what do you think John is saying here? Take a couple of minutes to talk with each other about that.
All right, just another minute, and then we'll talk about it. All right, everybody's settling down. What, what, do you, what does he mean? What does he mean that we're overcoming the world? Are we going to come and take over and be uh, the new one world government? Nora? Overcoming sin and brokenness. You went right for the jugular, Nora. Right for the jugular on that one. What else? What does he mean by overcoming the world? Hate. Returning hate with love. What else? Yeah, okay. Kingdom is temporary. Ken, what did you say? We don't have to follow the way of the world. We have an option. Yeah, what else? All right. So Karen's bringing in the cultural references. Uh, in the in yes, in the in the words of Mandiza. Listen, Karen is with it more than I am. Uh, we are overcomers. Yes. Thank you, Karen. What else? We can transcend our own battles. Yes, we can have peace. Yeah, you very well may answer this question based on whatever you're struggling with right now. Now, Based on whatever you're hurting with, whatever you see as an obstacle within your life, whatever problems you see, you can easily uh, talk about overcoming. And that that way of looking at things can sometimes be a little discouraging. Uh, As if, gosh, I'm not supposed to be feeling defeated. You know, I'm not supposed to be struggling with this. I'm not supposed to be upset about this or disappointed. I'm an overcomer. I shouldn't be. And so how we begin to define this very, very much will tell us where the go- what the gospel means to each one of us. And so very much so, it is overcoming at a very basic theological place, overcoming brokenness and sin. It is very much the case. When Scripture talks about the world, the Scripture is not really just talking about the proximity in which we live with each other on this planet but is talking about a system of living life and of going through existence that is uh, not controlled but heavily influenced uh, by Satan, by the evil one. That he that has been cast down, that has been given authority in this world and wants to lead people to a place of rebellion, a place away from God, of embracing sin, um, and then will eventually be uh, experiencing judgment um, on Judgment Day. So that's the world that often Scripture is talking about. And we have the ability to overcome the world. What John is saying is, you will not overcome the world without Jesus. It will not happen. It doesn't mean that you're going to overcome all your problems. Uh, I, you know, One of the real problems with teaching that God will not give you more than you can handle is that that's not really anyone's experience in Scripture. <laughs> And instead, uh, some people had to give their lives. And certainly you could say, well, but they had the grace in order to do that. Yes, they absolutely did. In fact, Scripture says, if you come to a place of great persecution, that the Holy Spirit, one of the things He will do is help you to bear up under it. However, uh, God uses bad things in our lives. And, and that's one of the primary ways He teaches us is how, how we deal with that because we are less interested and what God is doing when we have no problems within our lives. That's been my experience. When I have nothing going wrong, I have nothing to reconsider. <laughs> and so if the, the, I'm most likely to reconsider things when something's going wrong. Boy, that is a great tool that God often uses within our lives. But when we begin to talk about what are we overcoming, he is wrapping all of this not in your personality, not in your ability to quote Scripture, not in uh, just having a positive mindset, but he's wrapping all of this overcoming in belief in something. 
And so what we have to do is unpack, well, what is he saying? Do I just have to believe? Because Scripture also says you can believe and not know Jesus. And so when we try to unpack, and he does this, we just have to follow his argument. One, number one, the only people who overcome the world are true believers in Jesus Christ. The second argument that he makes is that God has testified to the world that Jesus is his son and he is the savior of the world. And when we read this, he says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Now, if we look through this, does anybody read that and go, what in the world are you talking about, water and blood? Yeah, okay, only Ian. Uh, I, I would say there's probably many of us that look at, what is he talking about, the water and the blood? What do you think? What have you, did you look into this this week? Did anybody study into this? When we talk about him coming and water and the blood, what is John talking about here? What do you think? Okay, so birth and baptism could be both of those things. What else? Where else do we see these references of blood and water? Crucifixion and anything else? What else? Birth, genealogy, okay. Yeah? Well, uh, so are you, talking about, are you talking about with the deliverance from Egypt? Okay, so you could, could be talking about the deliverance from Egypt. And, uh, okay, and that could all be a reference to that deliverance. All right, what else? What else could it, where else do we see references of? water and blood at his crucifixion one way that this is often interpreted interpreted <laughs> interpreted interpreted that's a new word uh interpreted it is sometimes interpreted talking about when jesus dies and they thrust a spear in his side water and blood flows those are all great examples of blood and water being talked about in scripture and you, will, you should also know that not everyone agrees on exactly what John is saying about the water and the blood. Uh, however, I will tell you that the primary way that this has been understood for the last 2,000 years is in two primary ways. One, the water is Jesus' baptism, and the blood being the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, capping the ministry of Jesus at what we consider the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry, as we read through the gospel, begins with his baptism. And, as, and to a point, the end of that, as far as how Jesus is doing his ministry, is at his uh, death um, and then his resurrection. So what we need to do is kind of drill down and say, well, why would John say that? Why would John use these as examples and confound many of us as we read it and go, what are you talking about? The water and the blood. So when we look at the water, remember the word we consistently see in these few verses in 1 John is talking about testimony or testifying. They're talking about him. God saying, this is trustworthy. You are an overcomer. You can believe this. You can have assurance of this. If we read in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13, Jesus came from Galilee through the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, I want you to remember, John at this point is baptizing with water, and he is baptizing with a specific message of repentance. Repent and embrace the faith that we have abandoned. Now, it's important to remember that this is a hard time um, in the nation uh, for these people. They have not had a new word from God through a prophet for several hundred years. And they have been under Roman occupation for about 70 years. So this is not something that encourages, especially those who have been born, and they have been born um, under this oppressive Roman rule. Uh, this is a time where they have become very lax on practicing their faith, 
probably questioning whether it's even true. And when you grow up under an occupation like that, it does change your mindset. This year, or this, not this year, but this uh, week, uh, we remembered what happened on 9-11-2001. And many of you probably had some emotional memories of that day. Some of you, however, do not have memories of that day because you weren't alive. And so what's interesting as we see in, in many of our students is they have grown up in a nation that has been at war their entire lives. Now, it may not be the kind of war uh, that you think of when you say war, and that we're just sending scores of troops to one place, but yet we have done that. And this is not for me to talk about the validity or not the validity of what has gone on over the last 20 years. However, it does change your perspective of the world. For the Jews, the fact that they're under this occupation and the fact that they are not hearing a fresh word from God, John came in and said, you need to repent and you need to return to your faith. He was a precursor to remind them of their history, to remind them of God's promises, and also to usher in Jesus, who was going to be answering all of those things. So when Jesus comes to see John, what he is doing is validating John's ministry and validating what he is saying. But what happens here is what is crucial to us. Verse 14, John would, uh, would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Lots of people saw this happen. Lots of people heard God's voice. Lots of people saw the dove come and descend on him. So this is a place in which what John is saying is we have seen this. This has happened. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, John saw this, but we weren't there. What if this didn't really happen? You know, one of the things that I find so interesting is how quickly we will believe things that do not involve God and how slow we are to believe anything about God. One of the evidences that I think for our faith today, for us to believe that this is true, these stories, while we are 2,000 years removed, more for some of the stories that we talk about, but especially for the gospel, even though we're that far removed, we have all kinds of evidence that say Jesus was a real person, and what Jesus said was really said, and what Jesus did was really done. We can trust that Jesus really was who he said he was. What's interesting is if you begin to look back at some of our historical figures and why do we believe they lived, why do we believe that they're true, one of, those, one of the common comparisons that are made are between Jesus and Julius Caesar. And when you go back and look at all of the evidences, did Julius Caesar live? We have actually very few pieces of evidence that say he lived. And whenever a person begins to pull documents together to say, are these true, or was this just some random guy wrote this down, or whatever, what they begin to look for, where is there consistency between multiple documents that say the same thing? And for Julius Caesar, there are about 12 good trusted documents that consistently say Julius Caesar existed, this is what he did, and the very first one that is found of Julius Caesar is roughly 900 years after Julius Caesar was purported to have lived. Twelve sources, first one that has been found was 900 years removed. And yet when we look at the story of Jesus, what we find are close to 6,000 pieces of evidence saying that Jesus did live. The things he said, he did say. The things he did, he did do. And the earliest a uh, consistent manuscript found was about 100, 125 years after it happened. And yet we believe that Julius Caesar lived, and yet the world still questions whether Jesus lived. It's crazy. It's crazy how much just evidence we have of someone we'll write about in history books to say, yes, this is real, and yet Jesus, we have so many more than any other historical figure, 
and yet we still question whether he's true. So even for us today, we can look back over history and at least say this, we have consistently said the same thing for 2,000 years. We can't even say that generally about the last two weeks of our lives. And yet for the last 2,000 years, we have had a consistent message. It's one of the reasons that when we come to a hard place in Scripture and we're not real sure, we have multiple uh, interpretations, what's important to do is go back and say, well, what has the church said traditionally? And we kind of look and see, well, what has been taught consistently over time? What we've also found is that whenever you begin to do that, you begin to see that the church taught something consistently until an event happened, and then it kind of shifted to something else. Always going back to the earliest understanding is generally the best because it generally is the most unadulterated. So we have evidence today. What John is saying is, hey, we were there. We saw the dove come down. We saw God speak out of the clouds and said, this is my son. This is an evidence we can trust You can know that those who overcome the world are doing that because of Jesus Christ. And one of the evidences that we have is God spoke out of the sky about this. Now, if God were to come in here and to speak out of the sky to us, we would probably first think like, where's the speakers? Somebody's pulling something over on us. But if God spoke, it would be like, oh, wow, that's important, I think. (laughs) You know, I, I would think I would put that down on my list of things to remember. And that's what John is saying. That's the water. He also says the testimony is by water and the blood. Now, historically, you all have given some great uh, possibilities of what that can mean. And I'm just going to tell you historically what that has been understood. And the blood has been understood to be his death, his burial, his crucifixion. Or excuse me, his death, his crucifixion. I'll get the order right. His crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the correct order. Out of order, doesn't make any sense. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been a long weekend. We packed too much in this weekend, right? So it's been a long weekend. Uh, Matthew 27, we read about this, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. And the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After this resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake that took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now, this is preceding stones rolled away and Jesus walks out, which is pretty significant as well. What John is saying is we have seen this. We know this happened. We know that this is real. For us, there is a level of faith that we must have that the apostles just accepted because they lived it. They saw it. There is a place for us we have to be accept by faith, and there are different places in which we do that that say He is the Son of God. And when Jesus talked about what it meant to be saved, it was through Him and there no other way. So we have those two testimonies that they would have accepted and said, yes, we saw it. Yes, it was real. And even for those people in Turkey in which John was ministering to, I saw it. You can know it was true because I was there. If you trust me, I was there. But then he goes on, and this is what becomes a little more important for us today. That not only do we have water and not only do we have blood and how God worked in those moments, but there's a third testimony that is consistently uh, giving testimony about Jesus to the world today and will until Jesus returns. And that is the Spirit. And when we look at the Spirit as the third testimony that Jesus is trustworthy and He was real and this is something that you can be sure of. In John chapter 16, this is Jesus talking about the Spirit and what this testimony looks like. And it says, But I have said these things to you, 
that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, John, when he's talking about the Spirit, is referencing this that Jesus is talking about. He is saying there is a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit that is constantly giving testimony about Jesus in the world. In fact, you are here because of that testimony. If that testimony were not there, you would not be here. If you were a follower of Jesus, you were a follower of Jesus because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Not because someone was able to communicate the gospel in just a better way, not because it was entertaining or engaging or any other reason. You are a follower of Jesus because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit that said Jesus is real. Jesus is true. And that testimony will continue until Jesus returns. And so when he begins talking about the testimony that we can trust, these are the three that John says you can trust. You can trust the water and you can trust the blood. And we trust the accounts of those stories because of the massive amount of textual evidence that says if it didn't happen, there were a whole lot of people saying the same thing about it. Which just leads to the question, why in the world would they all have share this same delusion when there are more evidences than any other person of history? These are the three things. And as we look at the works of the Holy Spirit, I want you to look back through this passage, John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. And there are primarily six things in which the Holy Spirit is going to continue to testify about Jesus. I want you to see if you can find these six things. So the works of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, what do you see first in those verses? What will the Holy Spirit do? What do you see? Say it again. Okay, he does testify, yes. But what is the first thing that specifically says that the Holy Spirit is going to do? The first thing we see is that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he says specifically, sin... Because, so that unbelievers will believe. If you have become a follower of Jesus, there is a, play, a piece of you that has had to have said, I sin, I do what does not honor God. This is the act of repentance. This is not good. And this is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Conviction. One of the things we have to be careful about as a church is that we don't try to take this role of the Holy Spirit and make it our own role. You know, we can get a really bad rap for wanting to be the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit. And we like to tell people what they're doing is wrong, right? We're good at that. Now, that does not mean that we ignore what is wrong or we never speak to what is right. But for us to try to do the work of the Holy Spirit will not lead to repentance because it is the Holy Spirit that leads a person to conviction and repentance. It is why you are here if you're a follower of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit has convicted you. It's one of the things we can trust in. If you uh, claim to be a follower of Jesus and have no conviction about sin within your life, then you are not a follower of Jesus. 
But that is one of the very first and primary roles that the Holy Spirit is going to have in your life. Sin, he's going to convict us of sin, so unbelievers will believe. He's going to convict us of righteousness, because uh, literally, I'm not here to do this for you. <laughs> I'm not here to do this, so the Holy Spirit's going to do this. And then also, there's this interesting thing that is a great conversation for another time that seems to be this ongoing judgment that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, just ongoing. And, and specifically, uh, judging Satan throughout this time. This is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. So number one, the Holy Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What's the second thing that we see that the Holy Spirit is going to do? Guide believers in the truth. Which means when we have disagreements about truth, that means we are not together fully hearing God or someone in the conversation is not. He is going to guide us into truth. Or what's often likely is that we each have latched onto a piece of truth and yet there's something deeper there that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw us both to. And if we stop with a very rudimentary understanding of what that truth is, we may never get to where it is, which is one of the reasons we have to be able to disagree and recognize that he could be actually drawing us somewhere deeper beyond where we've both latched on and said, yep, this is it, we're done. This is the whole thing he wanted to show us. And what he's actually doing is drawing us deeper because that's just a portion of the truth. It's one of the reasons that our inability to disagree with each other is crippling followers of Jesus. Scripture says that this process is like iron sharpening iron, which is a difficult process. Sparks will fly. Rough edges will be knocked off. We have to be able to disagree, to come to a consensus of what God is saying to us. This is why it is so crucial that we understand following Jesus in the context of community and not individually. And yet we are driven to think about following Jesus in the context of individually. Individually, I come to what I think is the truth. Individually, I just, come, I just worry about what I think. Individually, I'm worried about what God's doing in my life. Individually, I want to know what God wants me to do. Individually, I want to know what God is saying to me about X, Y, or Z. And yet, consistently, what Scripture says is this is a community experience. And the reality is, is God will not tell you everything. And the parts that you exclude because I'm just not willing to talk about this are the parts that God is not speaking to you many times. And we have to be able to come to a place and say, yeah, okay, I hear what you're saying, but... And there are times that we have to recognize that God is revealing the truth to us together as a body, which requires many times the body coming together to un cover what is the full truth that God is trying to tell us. What we don't have to disagree about is whether or not Jesus is necessary in order to have a relationship with God to be forgiven for our sins. John's saying this, this truth is settled. That's what this whole section of verses is. This is settled, but this truth that we're talking about, the Holy Spirit, that he guides us in the truth, that's a community experience. Always meant to be a community experience. So, Second thing, work of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is that He will guide us in the truth. What's the next thing that you see? He will speak whatever He hears from God to you. Now, this is, this is a tricky subject. <laughs> because there are many who will say, God will not speak another word about anything. It's in his word, read it in the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, you're not getting it. That's all you get. You get nothing else. And there are some that could say, well, then what we have in the Bible is the Holy Spirit speaking to them about the things of God only as it will be written in Scripture, and then that is now all that God will ever say. That's not my belief. Now, Scripture does say that if you change the gospel, you are in very troubled waters. And you will be judged for it. 
So it's not about us changing the gospel. We have to come to what was the critical understanding of the gospel by them, and this is part of what John is doing here. But God does still speak to people today. This is one of the things that I think is the most exciting parts of following Jesus, is that he, he communicates with us today. He's guiding us. And whatever he hears from God, he's going to communicate it to you. Now, many times, they are going to be the truths that are found in Scripture. Sometimes God does speak specifically to you about a situation you're in right now. A decision you have to make right now. A problem you need to address right now. See, in a situation like where you're in conflict with somebody. Scripture, you could go to Scripture and say, well, Scripture says I should forgive. I should forgive. Okay, we, you can take that from Scripture and just say, yes, God wants me to forgive. Yes, this is a universal truth. God wants me to forgive. However, many times the way the Holy Spirit will work will say, when you're driving down the road, Mark, you need to forgive. Like, now. So I can't give you a whole list of what things that God may say to you, but God does still speak to us today. That is one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, is to speak whatever he hears from God, to you. What's the next thing we see that the Holy Spirit will do according to Jesus? Leslie, you're killing it. You are killing it today. Uh, yeah. Everyone's waiting on you. He'll declare things that are to come. There's this dynamic message that he is continuing to communicate to us. What's next? She's not saying it. Somebody else has to say it. I've called her out. We'll glorify Jesus by declaring Jesus to you. Constantly communicating to you the value of Jesus. And then what's the last one? Man, think about that. Just think about that for a minute. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are united with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said it like this. He said, I and the Father are one. The Holy Spirit, the Father and I are one. You are going to be one with us. You are united with Jesus through the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is saying. These are Jesus' words. This is not somebody trying to figure out how this, all this supernatural stuff works. This is Jesus himself saying this. The Holy Spirit unites you with Jesus. This is why this is so important for our testimony today. Because if we do not have any experience with the Holy Spirit doing anything of significance within our lives, what do we stand on to say Jesus is real? If he's not active within your life, what do we have to stand on? Because John is saying there are three primary evidences that you can trust that Jesus is real. This is the real deal. And it is the fact that God said at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That the earth shook, the curtain ripped, that Jesus died and then he rose again. And now you have the Holy Spirit because you believe that it's constantly giving testimony about Jesus. You can, be, you can be assured of this. You can trust this. One of the things that is important for this all to be true is that all these voices are consistent. If they're all saying something different, how can we possibly believe them to be true? I mean, we could stop right here, an easy jumping off point right here would be to simply say this, or ask you this, do you really believe that everything about Jesus is true? Do you really believe that these testimonies are true? Do we really believe that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John, and when he came out of the water, a dove descended on him, and a voice came out of nowhere, without the ability of amplified sound. This is my son. Do we believe that when Jesus breathed his last, thunder erupted, an earthquake happened, dark clouds came over, the curtain in the temple ripped, 
People came out of their tombs and walked into town. Do we believe that happened? Do we believe the Holy Spirit is with us, in us? And if we believe that, what does it change about us? How does it change how we communicate about Him? See, this belief that John's talking about is saying, you can know for sure, and I will tell you, if you are living in a place in your faith of saying, I'm not sure, I'm reasonably enough convinced something went on and there might be some place after death, so I don't want to miss out in case. You can then understand why Jesus would say, some of you are going to come to me and you're going to say, hey, Jesus, I'm here. I'm here with you. And he's going to say, I, I don't know you. Did you really believe? See, this is one of the problems that the apostles faced. This is not new to us. And it, it will not ever be solved until Jesus comes back. And that is this kind of nebulous place between belief and action. And Paul spent most of his ministry talking to people about stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to do enough. You know, you are saved by grace through faith. It is not of your work. So you can't go around saying, I did it. You couldn't, but I could. And a lot of people today love that about Paul. They love to talk about grace. Because it feels like there's no accountability in grace. Like, I can really do whatever and God's okay. <laughs> you know, he'll forgive me. Because it's about grace. And even this, about believing. You're, everyone who believes is going to overcome the world. James really struggled with this. And this is something that we really struggle with today. And, and James never tried to say that Paul was wrong. He just tried to give it better legs. And how does that, what does that look like within your life? While Paul's over here saying it's, this is about grace and, and this is not about your works, James is saying, okay, 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 but a lot of you people are saying, well, I can do whatever I want to now. Show up, not show up, talk about Jesus, not talk about Jesus, spend time with him, not spend time with him. He can be my everything and he can be my, you know, something sometimes when I don't have something else going on. James said, listen, I will show you that my faith is real by what I do, by my works. Because this kind of belief should change us. If you believe the world was going to end tomorrow, absolutely believed it, what would you do differently today? I mean, let's be honest, we would still go eat and then we would decide what we were going to do. I mean, let's be honest, okay? There's some good home-cooked stuff in there. Last meal, not a bad way to go, all right? So we're still going to go eat. But then after that, what are you going to do, right? I mean, if you really believe that it was going to end tomorrow how many of you have work to do tonight that would not get done <laughs> right how many of you can go home and clean the house up you know i want it to be all tidy for when jesus comes <laughs> not, not what we're doing i'm telling you right now that's not what we're doing see belief changes our our activity it changes what we do it changes how we see it changes the trajectory of our lives it changes how we respond to people what would you do if you knew? What would you do if you knew that this was real? How would it change us? I think this is one of the things that it's so beautiful to have someone who's so sold out to Jesus that you're like the friend, you know, like you, yeah, I know them, but you don't necessarily invite them to parties because you know they're going to go radical on, about Jesus everywhere. And you're like, yeah, let's not have them because our work friends probably won't understand. But the, but. You, the beautiful thing about someone who is so radically sold out about Jesus is they remind us that this is true and real. And we should all be sold out radically for him, which will not, let me just give a caveat, mean we all look alike. Does it really change? Do we really believe Jesus could return before we get out of this service? Do we really believe that Jesus is with us everywhere we go? God sees everything that even though in our minds we can even convince ourselves of things that aren't true, we cannot convince God of things that are not true? Do we really believe? Does it really change us? See, the testimony of God has to be consistent to have that kind of effect on your life. And what John is saying is the testimony of God is consistent in this matter. 
We've got to finish up. Third argument that John is making in these verses. He begins to talk about the difference between the testimony of people and the testimony of God. But when someone's testimony differs from God, always choose God's. I mean, that just seems kind of like natural, doesn't it? He can part the Red Sea, he can flood the world, and then tell Noah how to build a boat. He can bring, raise Lazarus from the dead, raise Jesus from the dead. All these people, when Jesus died, came, out, came back. God can, I, he's probably better to default to than your buddy you know, that's been watching football all weekend, right? Not that watching football all weekend's a bad thing, depending on who you're watching, I guess. But when someone's testimony differs from God, always choose God's. So how do we know which is God's and which is... Like, I can be convincing. Ask Deidre. I can be convincing. I can be totally wrong. and be con- She doesn't describe it that way. She describes it as me wearing her down. But that's not really true. Just don't listen when she says that. But I can be convincing. How do you tell the difference between what I'm saying and, and what God is saying if they differ? You know, how do you make sure that what you're hearing here is real? Or some favorite author you read, or somebody that's on TV and has this massive church. And it's interesting what's come out with Benny Hinn over the last few weeks. A seemingly denouncing his former way of doing ministry, saying that asking people to give money to demonstrate God's work is a wrong way to go. Seemingly, because to my knowledge, he's not giving any of it back. But also, interestingly, only makes that confession after his nephew releases a best-selling book about the faults in his ministry. (laughs) Now, I hope that Benny Hinn comes to true repentance and faith, because he, if if you're a fan of Benny Hinn, I would just encourage you read the Bible. Because he doesn't. All right? I'm just, I'm, I'm not pulling any punches. The prosperity gospel is straight from the enemy's mouth. It is straight from the enemy's mouth. There is nothing good about the prosperity gospel. The prosperity that we receive from the gospel is Jesus himself. That is it. Many people have been led astray by him. How do you know whether this is trustworthy or not. And I, while we could spend a lot of time here, can I just leave you with a primary question to ask yourself anytime you wonder? The primary question is this. Is this consistent with God's work and wor- word and work in the world? Is this consistent? Because if it's not consistent with His word and not consistent with His work, then it is not consistent with God. So if you struggle with this, is this real? Is what Mark is saying true? If it's not consistent with God's word and God's work, then you, you, should, you should call me out. You should call a meeting with the elders, and I, there should be an accountability meeting. Because this only has power if it's consistent with what is true and what God says is true. That's the only way any of this has power. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity he said this about Jesus. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really that saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is all about Jesus. This message consistently is about Jesus. The fourth argument that John is making in this, and then we're going to wrap up. The fourth argument that he's making is that God's testimony is that we have eternal life only through Jesus Christ alone. Only through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way in which we can have that kind of a relationship with Him except through Jesus. So if I leave you with two thoughts, they're both similar. John wants us to know that there is more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and He alone provides eternal life to all those who believe in Him. John says there is more enough than enough evidence. We have what happened in His baptism. We have what happened at His death, burial, and resurrection. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You experience that. You see that. You feel that. We have more than enough evidence to say this is real. And what John is wanting his readers to to recognize as they read this, surrounded by people who don't believe what they believe, who think they're crazy or silly, or think that they're lunatics for trusting in this weird idea. John wants you to be confident that your faith is real no matter what the rest of the world says about you or about God. He wants you to know this is real. He wants you to know this is true. He wants you to experience this fully in your life. He wants you to overcome the world. He wants you to walk with the Holy Spirit uniting you in Christ. He wants you to hear what He has to say. He wants you to know what's coming. He wants you to to be able to be excited when you see Jesus descend from the clouds. When we stand before Him in judgment, He wants us to be confident that we're going to say, Jesus, and He's going to say, yes, well done, my good and faithful servant, versus depart from me. I, I don't know you. You never knew me. Jesus wants us to be confident. He wants you, when you go to work, He wants you to be confident that you live differently than your coworkers. When you go to school, He wants you to be confident when you make choices that are different than your peers at school. He wants you to be confident that this is real. He wants you to be confident that this is true. He wants you to continue on in consistency within your faith. And He wants you to know that you can have a fullness, a wholeness in Him that is available nowhere else. You don't have to live your life wondering, well, what if it's not true? Because that'll kill you. When Jesus talked about the parable of the soils, he said, there are some people who at first are going to get really excited. And then it's going to wither because it never really took root. And they're just as lost as the people who never got excited at all. They will have the same lot. You can believe and you can trust. You can let His seed grow deep within you. He let Him make deep roots within your soul, revolutionizing your life and the way you see the world, living in a way that is real and true. That's what He wants for all those who would read His letter. And that's what He wants for us. All right, let's pray. Father, God, the evidence that you are real and true, this all matters, is overwhelming. And yet, if I'm honest, there are days that I just pray, I hope this is true. God, you've given us so much evidence. I just thank you for the Holy Spirit who reminds us that this is real, who speaks to us, is drawing us to become more closely united with looking to the world like you did. I pray that you would give us that hope and that confidence. I pray that you would guard us, our tongues, our lives, our actions, so that our message about you is consistent with your message about yourself. Pray for those that are here and they are questioning. I just don't know. I don't know if I experience the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I believe these things really happen in Scripture. God, you said your Spirit will convict us. 
And I pray for conviction, the kind of conviction that leads to life and restoration, the kind that says, yes, this is real, the kind of conviction that says my life is changing, it's being transformed. Father, I pray that we as a community would hear your words and that we would be transformed by them. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.